is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Merck taking the next step to getting its antiviral treatments, the COVID pill, approved, applying to the FDA for emergency use authorization. The pill might be the real deal, drastically reducing deaths and hospitalizations. We'll look into what kind of game changer this could be. U.S. is dealing with a child care crisis. Not enough of child care to go around, and the pandemic has made it even worse. Let's start with Merck's COVID pill. Dr. Mike Sag is an infectious disease physician, HIV AIDS researcher, and associate dean of global health at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. Doctor, do you think this is really going to be a game changer or a, a, a breakthrough? Yeah, it's an important step forward. This is a pill that you take twice a day for five days immediately after the diagnosis of COVID. So think of it like you would Tamiflu for influenza. Uh, It would bring the infection under control, and it's prevented about 50% of hospitalizations in the original study. So that's pretty much a breakthrough, I would say. But you mentioned uh, Tamiflu, and one of the issues, of course, with Tamiflu is that sometimes people complain by the time they uh, have been diagnosed with flu, it's past that window when Tamiflu really does an effective job. They start feeling ill on Thursday, Friday night they run their fever, they can't get their doctor on the weekend. By the time they see the doctor on Monday or Tuesday, you're pretty much past that window. So is that going to be the same issue with this particular pill? Yeah, I think so. It's a great point. So what it means is that we're especially going into this winter when flu and COVID could be coexisting, not necessarily in the same person, but in the same environment medically. Uh, Somebody gets symptoms of fever and chills or cough. um, They've got to get tested right away for both influenza and COVID and then do that right away. Do that as soon as symptoms develop and then let their doctor see the results and get on the treatment as soon as possible. The sooner this drug is given, based on the onset of symptoms, the best uh, outcomes will come. All right. So no waiting around when it comes to the testing. You get symptomatic for any of this, you get tested, and then you get to the doctor. Um, They're only so far placing the order for, you know, the 1.7 million. I think we're probably going to need more than that if people are really starting to use this thing? Or is it only going to go to people who maybe are at super high risk of of a bad outcome? And if you're young and otherwise healthy, but you tested positive, I mean, is your doctor going to give this to you? I don't know yet. I think that depends on, like you said, the availability. Also, this has to be reviewed by the FDA, and we'll have to wait for guidance from them. The study took people who were at higher risk, so the same population of people that we use for monoclonal antibodies. So they may not approve it for everyone. They may just approve it for those at higher risk for hospitalization. But even there, it's an important breakthrough. But all the caveats you guys mentioned are at play. Is this a pill for somebody who has COVID or diagnosed with COVID, but is fully vaccinated? Yeah, it could be. And and in fact, uh, those breakthrough infections like you're talking about, we are seeing more of. uh, There was a recent study in Lancet uh, that showed that after, in fact, from Southern California, from Kaiser Permanente out there, uh, showed that um, after about three months, the the immunity from uh, the vaccines, at least the Pfizer vaccine, started to fade a bit 
from 87 or 88% down to about 47% as far as breakthrough. But yes, those individuals uh, would be eligible if they're otherwise at risk. Dr. Michael Sag, infectious disease physician, HIV AIDS researcher, associate dean, Global Health, University of Alabama, Birmingham. Doctor, thanks. Coming up after this short break, will the pandemic push us to get serious about child care? Child care is a big problem in the U.S. because, well, there's just not enough of it, and what there is can be very expensive. Pandemics made things worse. A lot of care centers had to close. Not all of them can open back up. Ripple effects on the economy. Parents have a lot of choices to make about work. KYW's Matt Leon talks with Tom Conway, chairperson of the Teacher Education Department and associate professor at Cabrini University. He was explaining how the system was before the pandemic. One word summary, horrible. Uh, It's been a 30-plus year issue in the United States. All you have to do is look at any national group, any uh, state report, any uh, government report on either side of the political spectrum, right? So every group has the stats, the data to show the United States doesn't invest in the early childhood sector. And it's almost like a hunger games. You know, if you're, if you have, it's this competing war of who has the money to be able to afford that for their child. And then people who, you know, just because of life circumstances are not at that same privileged, maybe salary level, you know, then had the guilt of feeling like somehow they're doing less or less by their children because they can't get into the market. So this has been known by parents. This is known by educators. This is known by many people for a long time, pre-pandemic, pre this period of time. But what the pandemic finally has done is allow everyone to acknowledge, you know, the, the unspoken thing in the room, right, that we don't do well by childcare in the United States. And, and, and I've seen various political, you know, we have two political parties, right, effectively. So Republicans, Democrats, if we just use them that have been running, but we have other political parties, but everyone always focuses on what they will do better by for children. And us who are in industry, us who research uh, early childhood, you know, it's like those false promises you keep hearing and those alarm bells, which we've been setting off in said reports or said articles or said research are now are now are now our reality. Right. It's it's it, we can't find the workers. In fact, actually, um, the day that we're talking here today is a big day in Philadelphia uh, through Public Health Management Corporation, PHMC, uh, which does a lot of work in early childhood. There's some great grant funding from the state uh, that's assisting with this work. They're having ECE, early childhood um, is what that stands for, day of hire uh, at 300 some centers throughout the city of Philadelphia because there just aren't even workers. It's not even that parents can't find a place to get their child. They're on these massive wait lists in some places. They also aren't able to keep the workers. That was a pre-pandemic problem. I think when you look at the stats, like if you look at the New York Times, you look at the Washington Post, you look at uh, NACI, National um, Association for the Education of Young Children, all various things equals out to like one third of childcare workers tend to leave within the first few months. And then 
definitely anywhere from 50 to 60% end up leaving within the first year. And so it's a constant hiring problem for center directors and people who own childcare centers. So today, you know, today, today happens to be Thursday, this podcast, you know, so this will be listened to future. So I'm hoping that, you know, colleagues and friends who are in the early childhood sector can find, you know, individuals who are willing to work with our, our young kids, our toddlers, our, our babies, you know, and we need that, right? You know, because, you know, what we also are hearing from um, the business sector that is not early childhood are, well, you need to come back to the office and they're not lying to them. They're just like, I don't have childcare. I can't work in the office. I'll still work from home and try to figure out what I can do piecemeal with family members or others that might be able to watch, you know, their two-year-old while they go back for a meeting in the office downtown or wherever that might be, you know, where they're working. So that was a long answer to your first question to basically say it's been a problem, but what the pandemic, I think in lots of parts of our industries, you know, early childhood, you know, education, fill in the blank, any industry, it's, it's shown how we've piecemealed together Band-Aid problems over the decades uh, and just become too polaristic on things that shouldn't really divide us. You know, we should want to do well by children. When it comes to the worker shortage, and you cited those incredible statistics, is the problem the pressure of the job of having so many little lives that need constant attention? Uh, is it the pay? Is it, you know, in the last 18 months, is it fear of COVID? I mean, I don't expect you to have the answer, but from what you're hearing, from what the research says, what's at the top of the list? Why the, the job searches are so in crisis mode right now? You know, if you when you read like New York Times, you read Washington Post, you read uh, Chalkbeat, which is a local um, uh, writers here in the Philadelphia area. You look at WHYY just had an article as well about this. Um, it is the pressure of the job pre-pandemic, but definitely pandemic of working with. Our most vulnerable, our most young, um, of caring for infants, uh, for those who accept, you know, newborns up to age two. Some centers early childhood is not until maybe they're potty trained, for example, that they could be there. But the stresses, right, of working with kids that age, they're fun. A lot of energy takes a lot of energy. Anyone who has kids of their own or has nephews or nieces, um, you, you you understand. And that's usually one-on-one, right? Yeah, the amount of energy. Now imagine, like you said, all the little ones around you. So it's that pressure. You know, people who go into this work at that age level, they're it's a vocation. They're called. Like those who stay they're good. We want them with our young kids. They're nurturing men and women, you know, generally stereotypically, it's been mostly a female dominated profession, but nonetheless, you know, they're there, the, the ones who are there for long haul, but they see these people come and go and they want them to succeed. They give them professional development. They do everything to try to help, but it's just like, people are like, if I'm getting paid this, I'm going to go work at nothing against McDonald's, but I'm making more money there. And in fact, um, it was, I'm trying to remember the writer. It was either in the post, maybe it wasn't the post. I believe it was New York Times, you know, a couple of days ago, had a long article about pay and pay inequity in early childhood. I want to say it was, you know, 
just a few days ago, we're speaking today, well, on October the 7th, so it might have been on the 5th or the 6th, the article was in the New York Times, but I highlight everything I already know and that we know is that on average, it's around 961 an hour that centers can pay. Some centers that um, are a little more advanced or have a little more funding or backing sometimes can bump that up a little bit more per hour but the hours are, are off, right? So think about it. You, if you're going to work and you have to be in work at 8.30 or 9 o'clock, you're dropping your kid off at an early childhood center, potentially in the 7 o'clock hour, you know, to make your commutes to wherever you're commuting to. And so as a result, they're open early. And what do they also do? Close late. So you're talking a long shift for, you know, the people who are in early childhood, anywhere from 10 to 12 hours, you know, they get their breaks and things that they need to do, but nonetheless, they're there all day. So that's why those centers tend to have a lot of staff. It's not just one one teacher with 15 kids that wouldn't be allowed. Instead, you have teacher aides, you have other supports who are there as the person who is the teacher record with a group or a class, you know, are engaging them in all the stimulating, all the early childhood brain development activities that we know do well by, by a young individual. So it's the pay, it's the hours. Um, now, as we're seeing Walmart, Amazon, fast food, they're not hiring, right? That Those industries, service industry jobs in particular, are finding it difficult to get people to work. Uh, why? Because they're finding some other jobs, right, that will allow them to work from home. Some of the things that they got to experience during the pandemic because they were forced to. I, I know that from friends in the tech industry. There are a lot of articles of people who work in IT, for example, who are like, I'm not coming back to your office. I can get paid more at this company that's going to allow me to work from home. Uh, and so we're going to have, I think, a rather dramatic shift in in work and what that looks like and feels like for us as a society but in the immediately the crisis that we're having is because of that pay and it's a catch-22 you know governor wolf or governor murphy or someone could fund or or a legislative assembly could you know fund which they do early childhood initiatives uh regardless of political party but that's still not enough to make up for all the costs, right? The upkeep of a building, you want to add its cleanliness, especially with COVID-19. That was some of the other fears that are highlighted by center directors and others of why people are left even during the pandemic. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, Start Strong PA, and I am remembering that correctly, 93% of Philadelphia care workers left. You know, they, you know, in terms of not left, but not 93% of the workforce, but 93% of those centers lost some type of staffing. Statewide, it's not any better. It's 92% of state centers, early childhood to pre-K programs, Head Start programs have seen staff leave. And they've left for other jobs, you know, because not that it's easier to work in the service industry, by no means, I my high school job in the college was Acme. So I, I understand, you know, that's, they're making good wages, but at the same time, you're still dealing with the public. So, you know, it's grass is always greener, so to speak, but you can't deny that they're going to make sometimes twofold their salary if just by hopping to a different industry. So my son is nine. When he was born, we were looking for childcare. My wife worked prior to his birth. And when we started running the numbers, what she made 
basically would be a wash for childcare. So yes. she just didn't work, stayed home, and that's been the case. I guess my one anecdote kind of fill how is it that childcare is so expensive, but the people providing it you just laid out how little they're getting paid. Now, you mentioned the cleanliness and upkeep of the buildings, and that is not cheap. But that just seems, to me, as just a guy, there seems to be a disconnect there that maybe you can help me square the circle. Right. So, if, you know, now, now, you're, now we're hopping into economics 101 of the child care industry. So underfunded mandate, you know, it wasn't mandated, you know, in terms of actual school age of when you as a family get in trouble if your child's not attending school, it's not until much later in life. In fact, in some states, it's not even until first grade, you know, that you really have to enroll a child in, in care. So, this part of the industry never caught up with what established pre-K if a public school district has one of those through to where we fund. We spend a lot of money, which is not a bad thing, but we spend a lot of money in, in, in educating children. So that money's there, but we're not down in the earlier sector. Right? When, it's, when they are the most vulnerable, most in the development, most things happening. Early intervention 101 tells you that if for some reason your child has something happening for them, you get it, catch it early on, 10 times over, they will be successful as they move forward. But if you don't have to enroll your kid to later in uh, to kindergarten, and you don't even in Pennsylvania, they don't even have to go to kindergarten technically. Um, you know, you have a kid, if they were to really wait that long, that first grade teacher is teaching everything about school. So that's one side. That's, that's, but to your question, so the budget of it, the economics of it, one is all the physical plant stuff. You know, if you are birthed through to a certain age, you have cribs, you have all, you know, kids can be messy right and so all the supplies that go into just the body bodily functions of young young ones um figuring out the layout of the centers all the regulations from our department of health services that then get layered on top that we want to be there obviously a parent that's not an easy decision for a mom and dad to send their toddler their young kid off to some stranger right and so you want those regulations. Those regulations cost money. You know, fire regulations, fire prevention, all the trainings when it comes to child abuse and the background checks and making sure that the people who are there are the ones that should be there. Uh, there are no certifications that are expected of this time frame. Instead, a high school diploma um, will get you into the field. If I was a center director, I want to find someone who has that nurturing background. In fact, I would love someone to have some early childhood perspective. And we have programs that can do that. There are childhood development associate degrees that typically are nine credits in, in background and then the rest is apprenticeship. So that is very popular to look for individuals who have that background because at least that person has training, especially in development training. Um, and so that costs money because you want to pay them some more. You need the teacher record and there's only so many students allowed or children allowed to a teacher in the, in that area. 
regular public schools, we cram them in. It's like, okay, okay, here's 25, here's 30 students per teacher. That would never, you can't, you can't do that because then that kid's overlooked. So you have that, you know, the top rated programs have several staff members to almost a two to one ratio. And, and, and that's needed. You know, think of, I don't know how your kid was, but daddy, daddy, mommy, 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 you know, that constant attention. And sometimes it's necessary. Other times they just want the attention, you know, that developmental stage that kids go through. Uh, so the cost of just the people alone to run it and, and then the food and other things that happen. So it's not a cheap venture. And people who sometimes open centers think, that they can do this and like they want to do this, they get in centers close very quickly, you know, because the, the, just the expense, you know, if you don't own the property outright, Philadelphia, there are a lot of, you know, those centers that are out of people's homes. Why? Because at least they own that property, but then they have to get up to code just like any business. So all the costs that go with that. So they're, they're not hidden factors, just go through anyone's, books and you'll see where the monies are. And the only reason they're able to succeed is because of grants, because of government funding that they can apply for. But by then accepting that, they then have to make sure they're at a certain level. That's how, you know, it's, we've make people do things in society. You know, some, some directors, for example, with the vaccination mandates, some wonder what will that do to the industry as well for workers? You know, what if some workers don't want to do it? Are they going to lose those individuals? You know, so that might even exasperate further, even though we know logically that makes sense to be vaccinated, especially amongst young children, you know, because that was another concern, you know, this is now hopping back to your prior question, oh, why some people left is because young kids eventually now, especially with Delta variant, you know, can easily pass that on to, you know, breakthrough cases, which thankfully are not a lot, but could happen, right? And so that fear of the unknown, I think, is still also impacting. So then at parents, you're paying that money. On average, the New York Times cites it as $1,100 a month. You know, so, you, you know, times 12, you could wash someone's part-time salary out very quickly. If you're starting to doubt the vaccines, a big new study out of France might eliminate the doubt. Researchers found being vaccinated reduces the risk of dying or going to the hospital by 90% for people over 50 years old. The researchers looked at nearly 23 million people. The study also found that vaccines appear to protect against the worst effects of the most prevalent virus strain. That would be the Delta variant. The results were the same, no matter whether the patient was given the Pfizer, Moderna, or in other countries, AstraZeneca vaccine. Johnson & Johnson was not studied. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. 